Good morning. Welcome. Good to see all of you here. I'm especially grateful for those from Liberty Christian School and preschool that have joined us this morning, particularly if you're here for the first time or it's been a little while. Uh, you are not only welcome, you are loved, and I, I pray for you every day. We're very, very grateful that this, uh, the campus on, the minister on this campus really goes on seven days a week. This place is never closed for very long, and the ministry that radiates from this campus, we pray and hope, goes on 24-7 through your lives and through the lives of our missionaries. Now, man, what a, what a Sunday. Did you guys see those baptisms? That's one of the absolute highlights of my year, if not of my life. Um, where's Josh? Proud of you, buddy. I'm grateful for you and for, for Daniel and for Lupe. And now we get to listen to Jesus teach us to pray. Of all the things that Jesus said and did, the Gospels tell us the only thing his disciples ever specifically asked him to teach them. In Luke chapter 11, they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They've seen him command nature because he is God. He is the promised son of God. They've heard him preach in the synagogue and open up the scriptures they've known since childhood. They've heard him read the book of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years before the birth of Jesus and explain to people in the synagogue that everything that Isaiah had promised there was being fulfilled personally, physically right in front of them because Jesus was there. He's giving proof through word and deed in the way he preaches and opens up the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And through his actions that are the very nature purpose and power of God manifested on earth. They have seen all of it. And what they asked Jesus specifically to do is to teach them to pray. Look with me in Luke chapter 11, please. This was last week. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John, that's John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, who started his ministry just before Jesus was, um, just before Jesus appeared on the scene. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus honors their request. And this is what I shared with you last week. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. That's as far as, I, as we could go last week. What I primarily wanted you to see is two simple truths. Prayer exists because God loves you. He did not have to make it so. He did not have to make himself available in that way. But the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who scripture tells us sustains all of creation by the power of his own word. In other words, it's the will of God that keeps the universe together. It's the will of God that gave you the breath you just took. Every joy and every pleasure you've ever had in your life is a gift from God who made you to love him and to trust him and to enjoy him. 
in every suffering that you've ever had, everything that sin has ever stolen in your life, like mine, that was wrecked by sin, in a universe that's been ruined by sin, all of that is under God's care and direction as well, and someday he's going to redeem it. And what he offers now through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is actual welcome into his family. The most astonishing privilege anyone could ever give you to be adopted as a daughter, as an actual son of God, and welcomed into his family with all the privileges and rights and responsibilities that pertain to being a child of God. And because of all of that love, God does not exist as a cosmic king far removed from his creation. His favorite way to explain himself to you is to explain to you that he is your heavenly father, your perfect father, and he allows you to speak to him. That's a privilege that would probably thrill you if the person you most admire on earth said they wanted to meet you for lunch and that they would pay for it. And they would give you all the time you wanted to listen to them, to ask them questions, to take the inevitable selfie with them, to do all of those things. That would thrill you beyond description. This is far greater than that. And Jesus taught his disciples specifically, when you pray, address God, verse 2, as your father. And that's the greatest privilege that anyone could ever have to be welcomed into that relationship. This is Christianity 101, but it bears repeating because it's so often forgotten and so easily set aside. When you open this book, when you open God's Word, God actually speaks to you. The Bible says that it is God's breathed out Word. In other words, it paints a word picture as if you were face to face with God himself and he speaks to you and the same Holy Spirit that inspired it will guide you and direct you and encourage you and convict you and sometimes you'll feel very burdened by what you read and feel that you've come up short and you'll turn to him for grace if you're thinking clearly and sometimes he'll show you things in his word that will remind you of how much he loves you and how good his plans are for you all of that happens when you open scripture and God speaks to you. And then in prayer, you're given the privilege of talking back. And Jesus, I shared with you last week, taught his disciples essentially to pray by asking their heavenly father for things. And you guys in the 1030 service took it a lot better than the 9 o'clock service, but I could tell people were looking through their Bibles trying to see if that was true. And it is. The nature of prayer, the heart of prayer, is needy children asking their Heavenly Father for the things that they need and the things that are right. All five of those clauses are requests. They're not all for you, but they're all requests that you are to make of God. For God's purposes to be kept, for His plans to be fulfilled, for His promises to be kept in your life, for your daily provision to be given to you, whether that's bread or forgiveness or guidance through this hard, rough world so that you are kept from temptation, the kind of temptation that would wreck your faith in God in the first place. All of that is in prayer. And yet, every person I've ever talked to, and I've dedicated a good chunk of my life now to listening to people who are smarter than I am and farther along with God than I am, godlier, more dedicated, more devoted, more single-minded than I am, Every single person, man or woman, young or old, that I've ever heard talk about prayer admits that they struggle with it. Do you? How do we struggle? Well, we get distracted. We get discouraged. 
in the middle of our prayers, we wonder if anybody's listening. We start praying for something that we think is very evident that we need, that God certainly should provide, and after praying for a few days or maybe even a few weeks, we get discouraged and we stop praying about that altogether, and we feel ourselves growing more distant from God. That's why it's important of what Jesus said next. If I were skillful enough, I should have taught you this whole passage in a single week. I'm just simply not that good, not by a long shot. Because Jesus didn't want the lesson of the Lord's Prayer to be separated, I don't think, from the two stories he told next. Because immediately after teaching them the Lord's Prayer, he told two other stories. One is a sort of parable, the other is a point of comparison with the disciples themselves. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 11, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the chairs. You're you're welcome to look at it. Luke chapter 11, verse 5. It says, he said to them, look, this is right on the heels of the Lord's Prayer. He said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. In other words, Jesus is telling you a story about someone who finds themselves in an embarrassing problem. It's really far removed from our culture because we have these amazing things called refrigerators. Unless you grew up really, really poor, there's almost always something on hand, right? Because there's always food in the house. For most of us, at least for my house, there's too much food in the house. In my case, there's the wrong kinds of food in the house. (laughs) I knew I'd taken it too far when I realized one of the boys was hiding certain things from me. He was taking certain things straight up to his bedroom. They weren't part of the common household because he knew if I saw it, I'd eat it. Not true. In the first century, people were paid day by day. It was entirely possible in a poverty-stricken culture where people earned their keep one day at a time that you could find yourself in a situation where someone drops in unexpectedly and you have nothing to give them. It would be embarrassing now. It was mortifying back then. The hospitality cold code of that part of the world then and now is much more rigid than our own. There are cultures on that side of the world that to this day live close to Bible customs and some take it so far as this. When you welcome someone into your home, you pledge to defend them with your own life. If someone threatens them and attacks them, you, your clan is going to step forward and fight to protect the life of your guest. So, in the story, in the lifetime of Jesus, for someone to have a friend come by late at night and to have absolutely nothing to give them is embarrassing. It's mortifying. That's why this person in this parable, in this story, goes to his neighbor. But he's not a great neighbor. Look at verse 7. He will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, who does that? Nobody does that, not in this culture. And you can, if you understand the houses of the day, it's hard to blame them. Small houses, they all slept together. Everybody who has a small child at home knows how hard it is to get the little turkeys down sometimes. And then for the dumb friend to 
likes to send text messages at 1 o'clock in the morning, right? And the thing pings and the child wakes up as if he had this supernatural ability to hear text messages coming in. And now the whole house is ablaze with life and light again. That's the picture here. But this man is desperate, and here's Jesus' point. Verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. In other words, this reluctant friend, he won't help because of friendship. He won't help because he loves this other person, yet because of his impudence. What does that mean? Boldness, brazenness. Some Bibles say persistence, bold persistence. Because of his impudence, his bold persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Here's the point of the story. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Here's the second story, in case you're not getting the point. Jesus is a masterful teacher. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And when you read the Bible, just slow down and read it with your mind's eye. Read it and picture the things that you're being told. So let's imagine about a 30-year-old dad with a 5-year-old boy, and the son says, Dad, I'm hungry. Can we have some fish? And he hands him instead of what? Is that ever going to happen? Not without Child Protective Services coming around, right? I mean, who, who does that? Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Can you imagine? Daddy, I'm hungry. Can we have some eggs? How about a scorpion instead? It's not going to happen. It's absurd, and that's the point. Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil... A little harsh, don't you think? Those of you who are parents, do you consider yourself evil parents? Jesus is talking to his disciples. They've asked him to teach him to pray. He's given them very specific instructions on how to pray. When you pray, you are praying not to a distant, uncaring deity. You are praying to God who, because of his love, is your father. And you speak to him with the reverence that he deserves because he's God, but with the confidence that you can have because he is your father. And he teaches them to pray. Then he tells them these two stories. And the stories have this in common. Both people in the stories are in trouble. They're needy. Let's be really practical before we dig into why Jesus said, called his disciples evil. You ever felt so ashamed and guilty that you were embarrassed to pray? Like just need comes on you and you realize I can't handle this on my own. And you just reflexively start calling out to God in prayer, but then you're overcome with shame and guilt because it dawns on you how long it's been since you've actually prayed to God this way. You ever feel that? I have. See, one of the things that keeps us from the relationship that God has for us in which he speaks through his word and we speak back to him in prayer and it's not religious ritual, it's an actual living relationship. 
And I wish you could have been back with me, back here, with these two brothers and this sister who got baptized and seen some of the things I saw and heard some of the things I heard from them. They're excited not because it's a religious ritual. They're excited because it's dawning on them or they're deepening in their understanding that they're actually in a personal relationship with the God who is actually there. It's not this opiate of the masses idea where you just need some kind of metaphysical crutch to work your way through life. People who actually seek God find him and they discover that he's better than any pastor could ever tell them. Because all we are is someone in a relationship with God explaining to you what he's like through what God has already done to explain himself in his word and giving you now this understanding that you're privileged to pray. And one of the reasons many people don't pray is when they get down to prayer, they realize it's been so long and I feel so bad. I wouldn't treat my best friend like this. I wouldn't give my best friend a short stiff arm and ignore them and not talk to them very much. I don't, know, I don't talk to my best friend only when I happen to need something. How dare I talk to God now that I'm in trouble? And that's, this why, that's why these stories are here and that's why they're so radical. Get this, some, someone said this to me, a brilliant professor said this to me in seminary and I never got over it. Every time Jesus tells a story about prayer like these, every single time the person in the story is in trouble. That means that God is not ashamed or upset when you turn to him in your trouble. He welcomes you to talk to him in trouble. He knows you're in trouble. He knows you've been in trouble longer than you've realized you've been in trouble yourself. He has been waiting patiently in love and faithfulness and mercy, waiting for you to finally get it. So Jesus tells these two stories saying, listen, not only am I going to tell you how to pray, I'm going to tell you two stories to tell you to keep praying. Be like a man who is desperate who is terribly embarrassed, who goes to his neighbor, who is pushed back initially, but he finally receives an answer not on the basis of friendship, but because he keeps asking and seeking and knocking. Can you hear those words building? There's a growth in intensity there. First you ask, and you don't get it. So you start seeking, you start going after it, and by the end you're... That's what happened in the story that Jesus told about the man who needed bread. Then he turns to another kind of trouble. This is a needy child. A child so small that he can't feed himself, so he turns to his dad and says, Dad, can I have some food? And Jesus says, no father among you, if your kid asks him for a meal, is going to give him something that could harm him. You don't want to terrify your kid. You don't want to turn breakfast into a horror show where he gets bit by a it's stung by a scorpion instead. And here's verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now really zero in on verse 13 because there's a lot there and there's a surprising turn if you're reading carefully. Jesus is a masterful communicator. He's making an argument from a lesser thing to a greater thing. It sounds like this. Listen, guys. As I teach you to pray, I want you to remember this. 
You're bad dads. You're evil. Wait a second. I'm not evil. I don't think I personally, Bruce Gardner, I don't think I'm an evil father. I mean, my, both of my kids are old enough you could ask them. I don't, I've done nothing purposely to harm them. I've hurt them in more ways than I'd like to count or admit. But I'd like to think most of it's been intentional, rooted in ignorance. Why is Jesus saying to his disciples, his chosen disciples, who are going to prove before it's all over that they are the best kind of men that God could ever make? Why did he call them evil? Because he's saying this, listen, by comparison, your ordinary human dads, you're ignorant and selfish and weak and sometimes unwilling. Any other parents like that? You ever act selfishly with your kids? Might not be the best thing to admit if they're sitting right beside you, but I'll give you a little plot twist. They already know. Jesus' point is, earthly parents are extremely limited. We get it wrong. We hurt our children, sometimes on purpose, sometimes without meaning to. By comparison, we're bad parents, but you have, verse 13, where is your father? What did Jesus call him in verse 13? He is your heavenly father. And let me hurry to correct something here and some people's inevitable reaction to this story. Let me be really specific, and hopefully this won't be distressing to anybody. For over 20 years, I've had a lot of people tell me something like this. It bothers me, hurts me, stings me, distracts me when you tell me that God is a father. Because you didn't know my dad. But he was awful. And then they go on to tell me about fathers who were absent or neglectful, abusive sometimes. Please understand what Jesus is saying here. This is his point. Your father in heaven, the one who made you, who saw you lost in sin and in unity with his son, sent his son to die for you so that your father, your heavenly father, loved your life more than the actual physical human life of his son, Jesus, who now calls himself your older brother. And he welcomes you into the family of God, not with the normal, ordinary human cost of adoption, which costs many thousands of dollars, but cost absolutely no one their life. No, Jesus is going to lay down his life on the cross and take it back in the resurrection so that you could have eternal life instead. And instead of being an ordinary, sinful human being, you are a redeemed child of God, a son or a daughter of God, and you're welcomed into God's family, and you will never be loved by anyone the way God loves you. So whatever damage, whatever static, whatever noise comes to you, and it's perfectly understandable, because of your earthly relationship with the dad who wasn't there, with the dad who died or walked away, or mistreated your mother or mistreated you, or used all of you to make his life better and never showed you a moment of kindness and genuine loyalty and self-sacrificial love, your heavenly father is nothing like that. He is the perfect opposite of that. And Jesus says, to his own chosen disciples. Listen, by comparison, you're terrible parents. You're evil parents. But your heavenly father, he's perfect. You're limited, ignorant, selfish, and stupid. And you know how to take care of your kids. 
Your kids ask you for food. You don't give them anything bad. You're the worst kind of parents, and you know how to take care of your little children. Imagine how, how much more. There's the argument from less to great. Imagine how much more your heavenly Father who loves you perfectly will do if you ask him. And there's even more there than maybe you realize. I want you to look at verse 13 again carefully before we're done. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give even better gifts to those who ask Him? Is that what it says? Call me on stuff, folks. I was, that was dead wrong. I didn't read it right. Did you notice? That's what you would have expected him to say, right? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give even better gifts to those who ask him? That would fit. But he didn't say better gifts. He didn't mention any specific gift at all. What did he say instead? He will give what? Well, that's kind of a sharp right turn, don't you think? The Holy Spirit hasn't been mentioned to this point. What's that about? Anytime you're reading, number one Bible reading tip, slow down. And if you come to something you don't understand, you have two things that you should always do. You should always study, beginning with your Bible, and try to figure it out. And the internet is a wonderful place. If you need resources, just email me. In fact, I'll put some in in the next churchwide email, if you're subscribed. And I'll give you some reliable tools you can always look stuff up on. I have people text and email me every week with Bible questions. I welcome that. But having done your own study, you have something else that you can do. You can ask the author. You can ask God. You can turn to Jesus in prayer and say, why'd you take that sharp right turn? I was expecting you to say, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Your heavenly Father will give you something even better. Instead, you said the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, let me tell you why. Luke is unique among the four Gospels. There's four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is unique in comparison to the other three because he especially wants to show you Jesus at prayer and Jesus in his relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is heavy. Bear with me for a second. None of, not all of this will make perfect, oh, that's easy to understand sense to you, and I don't really have time to get into it or the capacity to explain it as well as anyone would like. But God exists as one God. There is one God. But He eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the greatest theologians in the world says the easiest way to understand that is to think of God as a team. There's one team, and there's more than one person on that team. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father loves you and sends the Son who dies for your sins, and the Holy Spirit is the one, according to other parts of the Scripture, that regenerates you, that applies the new life that Jesus died to give you. So all of God loves you. God Himself, the one God who is there, loves you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you read the Gospels, you can see Jesus interacting with the Father all the time. He's praying to Him and addressing Him as Father. But in Luke especially wants to show you not only Jesus' relationship with the Father, he wants to show you the relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
So as you begin to read Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit shows up from the very beginning, even before Jesus is born. And Luke tells you that it's the Holy Spirit who comes upon the Virgin Mary and Jesus is born. Luke uniquely tells you that Jesus is praying at his baptism and the Holy Spirit descends up on him visibly, God showing off and showing out, saying, he's the one. The Father is speaking, the Holy Spirit is appearing. Then you're told that Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth when he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, and he reads the book of Isaiah, and he reads this promise written 700 years earlier. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. No one else could ever say that until Jesus shows up. Then in Luke chapter 10, Luke just telling you the life of Jesus says that Jesus begins speaking to the Father in prayer and he is rejoicing in the Spirit. This is endlessly fascinating and the Trinity is something I'm studying right now, but think of this, you're made in the image of God who exists in eternal relationship with himself and that's one reason that human relationships are so important and the only thing we need to do to have you psychiatrically break within a week is to leave you completely alone and deprive you of every relationship. That's all it takes. You leave a person entirely to themselves, deny them any relationship and interaction with another person, they will very quickly lose touch with reality. Why? Because God is eternally in relationship with himself. He makes people in his image. And the good news of the gospel is not only that he forgives your sin, he does something greater even than that. Because your sins are now forgiven, he welcomes you into relationship with himself. And some of you are beginning to figure that out. And you're just taking your first steps with God, but you realize something now that you didn't realize two years ago. You realize that he's real. And you're reading his word, and suddenly whoosh, lights are starting to come on and things are starting to make sense. And you are praying, and you have the conscious experience that he's listening, and then that he's acting. He's doing things for you. He's providing for you. I heard it's a very ordinary story, but it's absolutely wonderful. Right after the first service, someone came up to me and said, I got to tell you a story. And I thought to myself, I know what this is. Someone experienced in ordinary life in Huntington Beach, California, that there is a God of the universe who cares, and they prayed for something, and God amazed them by showing up and doing what they asked. That ever happened to you? Why does that happen? Because he's real. So this last verse... And we're nearly done, believe it or not. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What Jesus is saying is this. You're in relationship with God now. Your Father can give you every gift right down to a daily meal, but He is willing to give you even more than that. He is willing to give you Himself. He is willing to welcome you into relationship with him, if only you will ask. Because prayer is this way that God has to fulfill his purposes, keep his promises, and provide for our needs. So God will give you more than your needs. God will give you the greatest gift of all, which is his actual person. This is why John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, when he saw Jesus... John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, I baptize you with water, but this is the one who will baptize you with, can you guess what he said next? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
What does it mean to be baptized? It literally means to be submerged. In other words, it's heavy. It sounds mystical. But what John the Baptist said about Jesus is, this is the one who can sink you, who can submerge you, who can immerse you into the life of God himself. So prayer isn't wishing. A lot of us wish for things and we get confused and think we're praying. Wishing is wishing, praying is praying. How's that for deep preaching? (laughs) But do you know how often I've realized in my worry that all I've been doing is wishing for things to be different? And then it suddenly dawns on me. I'm worn out and exhausted from wishing and I've done a lot of working. You know what I haven't done much of? Praying. With the desperation of an embarrassed, hungry host. With the desperation of a little child who goes to his heavenly father, the one who's perfect, the one who gives every gift and gives more than a gift, he actually gives himself and says to his father, Father, Abba, Dad, please. And Jesus says, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will be answered. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this, the question is not whether God will lovingly answer. The question is whether we will boldly pray. It's not a matter of God not listening. It's not a matter of God not caring. It's a matter of whether we will push the shame and the guilt onto the perfect life of Jesus where he can absorb it, take it, absorb it, forgive it, cleanse it, blow it out of existence. Whether we will get tired of doing our own thing and doing all the work ourselves and ask the Father to help instead. It's not a question of whether God is going to answer and whether God loves us. It's whether we're going to pray. Listen to the brother of Jesus, James, teach you about prayer now. This is in the book of James. James was famous even among the saints of the New Testament, the the apostles that were close to Jesus for his prayer life. And he says this, you do not have because you do not ask. Let that sink in for a while. James is saying in very specific language, before you get lost in the mystery of how can a sovereign God dealing with people like me, all the different factors that are allowed in the universe, how can I know that my prayer doesn't conflict with his will? Just first sentence, you do not have why? James says there are things that you could have that God hasn't given you for one reason, you haven't asked. That's one guardrail. Jesus said, when you pray, in other words, you have to pray first. Don't wish, don't work, pray. You say, am I not supposed to work after I pray? Absolutely. You can always do more after you pray, but you can't really do anything that matters before you pray. Think about the the hubris, the sheer arrogance of that. I'm going to go out and give it my best shot, and if I need help from God, I'll let him know along the way. You imagine the God of the universe looking down at my life saying, what are you doing? You can't take another breath without me. Why do you think you can handle that problem? Why do you think you can parent your kids? Why do you think you can have a a good marriage? Remember me? You do not have because you do not ask. That's one. Look at the next. You ask and do not receive because you ask, what's it say? Wrongly. Can you ask God for the wrong things? Absolutely. Have you? 
I have. There's an old country western song that says, thank God for unanswered prayer. <laughs> I'm not much on country western, but that one makes perfect sense to me. I've pleaded with God for things, and eight years later I realized what a disaster it would have been to have been given what I asked him. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Because we really are like children in relationship with the perfect dad. And if you've ever known little children, they ask for a lot of dumb things. Dad, can I play with the chainsaw? No. <laughs> can I have the keys? No. Absolutely not. We're not doing that yet. You're not ready. That will never be ready. That's never going to be part of your life. And the Father knows best. What's Jesus trying to teach is simply this. Your Heavenly Father will never stop loving you. He loves you so much that not only will He give you forgiveness of sins and your daily bread, not only will He make you a partner with His kingdom coming and His will being done, not only will He invite you into His actual life and do things that He intended and that He willed from the very beginning, not only will He make all of that part of your daily experience, He's never going to stop loving you. If you are in Christ, even when you are far from Him, He will love you eternally because He's not like an earthly father whose love ebbs and flows. He doesn't determine His faithfulness and His love for you in response to how you treat Him. No, on the contrary, His love is never-ending. His love is unfathomably great. That's why no pastor, no Bible teacher, no Christian book you've ever read can ever tell you the full extent of how much God actually loves you. And because He loves you that way, you should never, ever stop praying. I'm worried about praying for the wrong thing. Pray anyway. Keep His Word open. Keep listening to Him speaking. Let Him guide you. Let Him direct you. Let Him orchestrate the timing. You keep praying because your Father will never stop loving. Let's pray right now. Hey, Christian, have you been prayerful? Or is it kind of like salt that you sprinkle over a meal you've already decided on? Is it more like an almost a good, good luck, I hope things go well thing that you do quickly? You can pray to your Father now. In fact, I invite us all to do so. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the sins that took Him to the cross were yours. He had none of His own. He went to the cross for you to save you. You can turn to Him in repentance and say, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin I've been evil, I've been wicked, I've been far from you, I've ignored you and disobeyed you. Please forgive me, save me. Take my judgment, give me your life instead. Father, how good you are that you can listen to many hundreds of people pray in a weekend in this church and in countless others across the world. And you can listen and tend to each one of us as if we were the only child you have. There may be some here, Lord, who don't know you at all. If they will turn to you in the name of Jesus, you will save them. You'll give them the Holy Spirit. You'll give them that new life. You will give yourself to them. And they will be saved and they will be free and they will walk with you and begin to enjoy you 
And if you give them a long life, many years from now, they'll marvel that they know you so much better, but that the life you gave them was as real as it ever would be the minute they trusted you. So if anyone has that need, I pray they would turn to you right now and ask you to be their Savior and their Lord. And Father, this offering that we give you, whether we give it here or online or in any other way, Lord, it's all part of obedience. There's no effort to repay you here. We just want to love you and show you that we trust you and that we've heard you telling us to be generous. And we give you this offering and this worship in the name of Jesus.